Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again to do another episode of NOLCAST. Uh, Bud, as always, we'll thank our friends in New Iberia, Louisiana, Louisiana Hot Sauce, title sponsor, and the driving force that brings you the NOLCAST. On tonight's NOLCAST, we'll be touching on a variety of subjects, including the idea of signing waivers potentially to go to college football games, some pretty cold water thrown regarding uh, stadium occupancy, and the idea that we we're just going to kind of skate away from this does not look like it's come to fruition at all as far as COVID impact. Uh, we have a better idea as to what exactly it costs some of these programs when it comes to just monitoring and testing their athletes. And then we have a full spread of listener questions. So a lot to get to tonight. I look forward to uh, seeing where this takes us. And uh, with that, we'll jump into tonight's NOLCAST. Let's do it, buddy. Uh, so a lot, of to- a lot of good topics tonight. We are going to get those listener questions. A lot of our topics are covered by those listener questions. But we both independently put notes in here, um, and we don't really talk politics on this show, so we're not going to tonight. But to your point there, let's start with that waiver discussion. I thought that was pretty interesting. Obviously, Donald Trump uh, is having his presidential uh, campaign rally in Tulsa, at least as of the time of this recording, uh, and they're going to have uh, people sign waivers in order to enter the arena. Uh, masks will be provided, but not required. Social distancing will basically not be happening uh, there. And Separately, I, I put in Ohio State is making their players sign a waiver, it looks like, to, uh, to come, come back and work out. I think you're spot on, man. I, th- I think we are headed towards uh, a bit of a waiver society. Now, whether these hold up in court is probably an entirely uh, another discussion, but this kind of plays into the whole, like, are we going to have college football? And if so, how many fans are we going to have in the stands this fall? And I think this is a piece of that. Yeah, I do. I think um, it's interesting. I think we're we're all about to become very familiar with waivers. Uh, an anecdotal experience that I can share with you is my mom's an, an artist here in the Atlanta area, has put on an art show for almost 40 years now. Um, she's currently debating as to whether or not she's going to be able to put that on in 2020. But the idea of having to sign a waiver to come to the art show is something that has been brought up. Uh, and certainly that's uh, you know not not typically common uh, <laughs> legalese found in the art community. So it's, uh, I think it's something that we're all going to have to get in familiar with. And, uh, you know, it just it feels like the last 48 hours or so is a decent amount of step back required on whether or not we're going to have college football. I, I still think we will, but it sure seemed like we were kind of fast tracking it to we were going to have college football on a normal schedule. And it was sure trending in a positive direction that we were going to have college football with uh, limited restrictions on it as far as attendance. And uh, I think the declaration of the Texas governor today about 50% capacity at best is a moment in time in this process where we realize there's going to be, you know, this is going to look kind of the bizarre season that we've talked about the whole time uh, over the past three months or so. Yeah, it's, it's certainly not going to be a normal season. I mean, it's, it's, it's very abnormal. 50% capacity, honestly, man, just doing the math, uh, earlier earlier this week, fifty uh, percent capacity. If you're going to achieve social distancing within stadiums, which I'm not convinced they will, by the way, but if you were to do that, fifty percent capacity is way higher uh, than than you could actually achieve. I, I think fifteen to twenty percent. If you just think about the, the the square footage of of you know a, a stadium bleachers, and and you think about uh, you know a six foot radius around each person for for, for distancing. Uh, 50% capacity is just is not compatible with that. So maybe maybe the Texas uh, governor is saying something like, hey, we'll, we'll go 50% capacity. And in his mind, maybe he's following up with, 
uh, and, and masks will be required. Like, like, like we saw the airlines uh, basically announced tonight that they're going to require you know, compulsory masks on, uh, uh, on, on flights and the state of North Carolina might be as well. Man, if you get 50% capacity in Doak this fall, I think that's going to be looked at as a win. It may not feel like one right now because I know the state's opening back up, but I don't, do you think they're going to let more than 40,000 people in Doak? Uh, I don't know. I, I think uh, the numbers that we've talked about for a couple of weeks now, the idea of somewhere between 20 and 30,000 is, uh, is what the ACC kind of had talked to us about a couple of weeks ago. I think that's what you're going to be looking at uh, across the conference. Now it's individual institutions can make up that mind, but uh, I think the idea of 28,000 people in Doak uh, this fall is, is very legitimate. You know, there's been some interesting pictures pulled up of, of the, uh, was it 1918 or 1919 flu epidemic? And you see pictures of people at like old Georgia Tech games wearing masks. And I think that's just what, what you're going to see. You know, it's certainly going to have a, a significant impact. I remain positive on the idea of the games being played. Uh, but it does seem like there's been a decent amount of cold water thrown on all of this over the last uh, 48 to 72 hours. And it kind of makes you wonder, like, okay, what, what are their actual policies going to be if you have a player uh, test positive during the season? We, we've already seen some backing off of the 14-day quarantine requirement, right? We've seen some schools say, say basically like a, like a forced quarantine of three days and then maybe like an observation period you could do uh, 10 days if, if you want. I, they seem to be finding ways to kind of say like, hey, even if a couple of our guys get sick, we're, we're still going to play, which is absolutely what I think the schools uh, want to do. Um, at the same time, I, I think football is a very, and specifically college football, to me, college is just so much different than pro football for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, think about how many players are, are in D1, right? I mean, 10,000, I sound right. You got 130 schools, you got 85 guys plus about 15 walk-ons per, per like, so, you know, let's just, let's just call it about, about, you know, 10, 11,000 in the pros, you probably have. They have 50 man rosters. They have 32 teams, like a, like a, like an eighth, hell, less than that, uh, of, of the size. And you have like kind of one central governing body there in the NFL. Whereas in college, you, you don't. In college, you have to balance sort of the, the, the need to, to claim these players are, are student athletes as opposed to, you know, pseudo employees, uh, of, of the school. And in college or in NFL, particularly, like you could quarantine some of your guys and just call up guys off the practice squad. And the practice squad, by the way, does not necessarily have to practice at the same location. In fact, I think some NFL teams will probably maintain like a side practice squad to where they can call players off uh, if if they happen to have some guys from the big club, you know, get hurt and, or, or or come down with the virus. Obviously, in college, you you really can't do that. You don't really have that opportunity. You have your walk-ons, but you're not going to have like a separate. There's not going to be an FSU junior team that, that, that practices over. At TCC, so I I do think we're going to have this season. Uh, I think we're just going to have some guys get sick and deal with it. For the most part, we know this virus is far more you know deadly slash severe to the you know like, like the the more extremes as far as the age of, of the population. I, I think we're just going to going to deal with it, but it, it is going to be a little bit weird, man. Another issue you have, I think, the testing is just so damn expensive for these schools. It's expensive. We grabbed a quote from Tom Herman. I've, I've had a fascinating one that a, a guy at Texas would 
would mention the cost when that's one of the few institutions that can literally probably write a blank check for almost all of this stuff and not bat an eye. Do you think he was bragging about it? Uh, I don't know. I think he was bringing, um, I don't, I, I think he was bringing a real legitimate concern as to, hey, look, you know, this isn't going to, nobody's going to worry at Texas as to whether or not we can, we can cost, uh, we can afford this. But uh, his quotes, the testing alone is upwards of a quarter million dollars. Now the upkeep, continual sanitization, screening and all that stuff, this is going to be upwards of a million dollars uh, just to get our guys here voluntarily and test them. So and we've talked about this for a while, but the the incurred cost of all this are going to be incredible for these programs. And again, Texas makes one phone call and that's taken care of. Not the case for 95% of these institutions. I mean, this is going to be a real physical drain on them uh, if they try to go about this, uh, you know, under the most responsible model. So it's going to be fascinating to see uh, how this bears out. But like, you think it's not impacted Georgia Southern that they've got to spend $820,000 on stuff that's not, you know, otherwise put in the budget. It's going to, uh, it's going to have a real impact on the industry, certainly. Now, I did hear some interesting stuff today. Uh, I'll, I'll credit my, my colleague, Brendan Marcello, uh, national reporter for us at 24 uh, 7. He said that he is hearing some schools are, are, are finding a way to sort of you know, allay those costs. Uh, if they're associated with like a research university or if they have a partnership with like a, like a, like a local uh, hospital, that they're not being charged the, the same amount that a normal test would, right? And part of that is because obviously like hospitals and, and universities want to have a lot of testing so they get even more data. Uh, and like that's something that, that they're, they're not having to pay that full cost. So I, I don't think Tom Herman's wrong here. I would not question Tom Herman, you know, him being honest here. I think that probably is what it costs. If you're paying it, that's another sort of question there. I think though, like that's how some of these schools that don't have these big time budgets are, are going to get these, get their guys tested. But not all schools are testing and like Florida State's testing and they've already announced, hey, we, we, we had a guy with, with, with coronavirus. Some schools like Houston didn't test everybody as they got back to campus, right? They only tested guys when they were symptomatic. And I think that shows a little bit as far as the financial divide. But then again, some P5 schools did stuff like this too. Instead of testing everybody when they came back, they just let everybody kind of co-mingle despite the fact they were coming from you know, across the country. And uh, Houston uh, is one of the more extreme cases we've seen so far. Their guys came back and, and what happened? Yeah, so Houston had to, had to suspend things, which is the, like the ultimate fear here is that you have to start breaking up practice uh, for a litany of reasons and we'll get to them. It's also a continuation of a trend. Some of the things that we've talked about as far as watching individual states, individual hotspots, uh, Houston is, is, and Texas have continued to become one. But uh, North Carolina's numbers have not been going in a particularly positive direction as well. And that's one of the places that could impact, uh, you know, from a standpoint of conference play in an incredibly quick manner. Uh, but for, for Houston to suspend activities gives you an idea as to, uh, you know, just send up a, a red flag for them. Not totally tied in, but I do want to drop this reference point to some of the soccer that we've seen uh, come back and just give you an idea as to how disruptive this is. Uh, like soccer's having to con- completely rewrite their substitution rules right now because of injuries. Injuries in the Bundesliga, the first league to come back, are up uh, almost 500% year over year in the first two weeks that they've been back. So small sample size, you don't want to make too much of it. But at the same time, the last thing you want to do is kind of start to get the wheels of this machine moving and then have to break it up or put it on pause because it's, it's expensive, it's disruptive, 
And uh, there's a lot of early stats that point out that it's uh, incredibly wearing on the athletes as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense to me that, that, that they would have more injuries because guys were not, not able to train in the same way that they were before. I think that's why football approving its six-week ramp-up period uh, was, was as necessary as it was. I, I also point out, like, I, I don't want this to be doom and gloom. If you look at, at, at some of the data out there, and you guys know I'm, I'm a big data guy, yes, there are more cases being captured. Uh, however, we, again, I mean, and you, you put this into our, our show notes here uh, that, that we go off. I mean, the, the seven-day uh, average deaths just edged under 700, right? Which is a, a very good sign. Now, we don't know exactly what the impact of all these states opening up back on Memorial Day will be. But like, I, I think, and I said this on, on the Barton and Bud podcast like three months ago. I said that us playing college football will not be about having a vaccine. It'll be about, can we get to, like, if we get to a place where the hospitals are not overwhelmed capacity-wise, we're playing. Like, that, that's the point. You nailed it. You nailed it. The, the thing we need to watch is, is testing is, is good, and you're, and you're very correct to point that out. If we start to see hospitalization rates soar, then we've got to come back to the table and have a conversation that nobody wants to have. So uh, I think you're, you're very accurate in pointing that out, and, uh, you know, that'll, that'll be just the data point that we suggest you guys really pay attention to. I think what you're going to see, too, is like a lot of people are going to test positive and not have symptoms, and maybe not have one of the strains that that messes you up quite as bad, right? I mean, like I I, I have a friend in Michigan who uh, his whole family had coronavirus, and he tested. And this gets into the false positive idea. Like he tested he tested negative for it, but he's like, yeah, I felt a little under weather. Like, um, there's almost no way that I don't have it. Right? Like, I, I literally, like my, my kids, my wife, my grandparents, all, all of them had it. Like, you know. But I, I had I had a, a negative test, so. I do think that, I don't want to get into the false test idea here, but I think as we do more testing, the number of positives may go up disproportionate to the number of hospitalizations, which I think is what you're getting at there. So um, like, and what we really care about is the, is the cases that actually really hurt people. Let's get into a little more college football talk. Do you remember, uh, let's kind of throw this back, just a very short discussion. Do you remember when we said the saving grace from Mike Norvell's uh, Gaff and, and you know thing, thing that he had with, with uh, Marvin Wilson was that he didn't actually make any racist comments or any like pseudo racist comments, you know, and there was no allegations about his program being run in anything but a very upstanding way, and he really just misspoke about the extent of his communication with his players, not even like the the context of it, but, like the just how much communication had gone on. Ingram. What he did uh, now really, really pales in comparison to what's going on in some programs like, uh, like, like an Iowa or, or an Oklahoma State. Yeah, unfortunately, I think this is going to be uh, somewhat a story that you're going to continue to hear. But the, Mike, the Gundy one's a little bit different. Uh, and the Gundy's, I saw a tweet earlier today. Well, I don't even know if that's appropriate. But I think Gundy is uh, a, can, a habitual offender in some people's eyes. Uh, and he's, he said, you know, we've pointed out what he said about in fact, we've got to get the players back in to pump money through the state. Gundy says a lot of the stuff out loud that, that you're kind of not supposed to say. And uh, he does. there's an element of Gundy that's kind of similar to Jimbo, in my opinion, that he kind of pushes 
until he finds a wall. And uh, just from and speaking particularly about that program, you don't hit many walls with now that T. Boone Pickens is gone. So I think Gundy's an interesting character. You know, I, I the the choice again. We don't want to jump into a bunch of politics, but wearing a, a shirt like that at a time like this is at best incredibly tone deaf. Uh, he and his player came out with a, a statement tonight that was a tad bit bizarre, in my opinion, uh, as far as who offered an apology and how long and the individual spoke. But let's not get into that. Uh, I th- I just think you have to be incredibly authentic when discussing this subject and you have to um, have some kind of understanding as to the issues uh, and the way that you don't immediately view them. And uh, Gundy and and Ferenc have have maybe not shown uh, the best examples of that. Very baseline, low bar expectations, but uh, yes. The thing is, I, I guarantee you a lot of college football coaches have politics that are very closely aligned with people who would watch OAN. Thing is, if you wear a t-shirt like that, it does open you up to criticism for, you know, watching a news network that just openly touts completely racist conspiracy theories, which just have no basis in fact. I mean, like, and then you, you have the gall to kind of say, I I like this network because it's all, it's all facts, no politics, like on the record, which is just pretty crazy. That was, uh, that was just two interesting vantage points running together there. Yeah. And then you had players calling him out for, uh, you know, like basically saying, like, I'm going to send you back to South Dallas, saying like, like, you know, send you back to the hood. Like the, well, there were a lot of tweets that came out there and a lot of tweets that came out in the Iowa case that we did not see from Norvell. And I think the, the, the juxtaposition here is, is important, right? Norvell's thing was pretty brief. He handled it relatively quickly, probably could have handled it a little bit faster within that day, but he didn't, he didn't let it fester, you know, for days at a time, certainly. You didn't see anybody from Memphis come out and say, oh, yeah, exactly. Like Mike Norvell promotes bad culture. Like all the guys at Memphis publicly, they seem to really like him. And I, I think, I think having that, that not having that dog pile, I think that that really matters. Um, especially for recruiting. If I was recruiting against the other guys, I'd use that for negative recruiting all day, all day. And I guarantee you it will be not, not, not that, you know, Oklahoma State and Iowa recruit very well anyway, but there's no doubt. That that's that's blood in the water type stuff. Uh, speaking of which, recruiting, uh, Bama and Georgia uh, quickly offered some prospects at Florida State recently uh, offered. So, yeah, back to the days of free scouting university. It felt like uh, over the past two weeks or so, which is good, you know, which is compliment and, and uh, uh, only an affirmation from a standpoint that you're dealing with a staff who uh, knows how to identify talent and uh, you know, just nothing but good things to take away from that. We'll uh, take this time to thank our friends at Madison Social for the Table Restaurant Group. Uh, we want to remind you that the 17th of each month is Reuben Day and uh, certainly looking forward to, uh, to Wednesday and would recommend that all of our local Nolcast listeners have that in the back of your mind. Uh, Nolcast uh, supporters have, have had a, certainly a special relationship with Madso over the years and it's been uh, uh, great to see kind of how you guys have supported them over the past three to four months, how the broader uh, Florida State community has supported them. Certainly not trying to take uh, credit for for everything and saying that, but uh, an institution that has its finger on the experience of being a Florida State athletic supporter, uh, really unlike any other uh, group I've seen at any school. Uh, so uh, tons of open air opportunities. Take away if you care for it. 
Uh, remember the great offerings at Madison Social and Township, and uh, we certainly appreciate the support that you've given uh, those that have been with us since day one. All right, hey guys, let's go ahead and get now into our listener questions. Uh, we get most of these from our patreon.com slash Nolcast page, and uh, just doesn't cost too much to join that thing. Check us out if, if you're interested in, in supporting the show best way that you can. And we, uh, we've been sending out lots of t-shirts to folks who have recently joined uh, and who have you know, helped us with our, our loyalty. This one comes from Bishop. Bishop says, hey, fellas, at some point, would you discuss what separates a coach from being a mediocre recruiter from an ace recruiter? It doesn't appear to be as simple as saying relatability as ace recruiters seem to, sp- to span the spectrum of diversity. Uh, what makes James Coley and Damian Craig so much better at recruiting than, say, a Lawrence Dossie or Rick Trickett? Thanks for being the best podcast out there. Look, Bishop, that's, that's a really nice, really nice question, and, and I appreciate the compliments there. Look, man, it's sales. Recruiting is sales. What makes a good salesperson? What does not make a good salesperson? Well, relationships are really a big part of that. There's a lot of different, different elements of sales. What's the product you're selling? What, what is your track record that you're selling? Right? What, what, what is the relationship that you have with the person? How well are you able to highlight the, uh, the pluses of your product and minimize potential negatives of your product? How well are you able to kind of allay or overcome the concerns or fears that your potential client might have when they come to making their decision. But it's also, it's, it's more than that. Like the, the best recruiters, the best salespeople, they're, they're always on. They're like there, there is no off switch, right? Like they, they eat, sleep, breathe it. And, you know, some of these guys just don't have that, that, that killer mentality to where they want to close stuff. They, they just don't, right? Like James Coley is always recruiting. The other guys you mentioned, I, I don't think they wanted to recruit. I don't think they liked recruiting that much, and they certainly weren't good at it. Some of them also had really bad reputation stuff to overcome, not personally necessarily, uh, but like Dossie not putting a guy into the NFL for like a decade. At a certain point, he just became very easy to, to negatively recruit. Like It's like, oh, I'm going up against Dossie for a recruit? Is it a receiver? Okay, boom. He, he doesn't put anybody in the NFL in a decade. Like that's not that hard to, to negatively recruit that. Then there's the other elements too, right? It's understanding which rules you can bend. And it's also understanding which rules or how to break certain, just out and out break certain rules and get away with it. And in terms of getting money in the hands of players, helping out their families, paying for visits, paying for extra hotel rooms, right? On, on, on certain visits, maybe if a kid wants to come up and he wants to bring eight family members and NCAA rules say you can only have a you know a hotel for for him and a hotel for his parents, not three other other guest rooms. Finding ways to, to get stuff like that done, you'd be surprised how much that actually is still on the assistant coaches. Like it's not just an army of support staff who does that stuff at, at most places. Because then, like you still need to kind of keep that on the DL. You don't want that many people involved in it, especially because your support staff is probably going to quickly be be hired away at other places if they're good at their job. So like that still falls on the assistant coaches a lot of times to take care of that kind of stuff. So relentlessness, natural sales capability, the ability to make relationships with people and the willingness to get your hands dirty. Those are the keys to being a great recruiter. 100%, man. I mean, you nailed it. It, it's, uh, it is fully sales. It's about evaluating uh, a prospectus to which you can win and acknowledging the ones that you aren't and taking yourself out of the rotation. 
And one final point, although you, I feel like you referenced this, um, when you talk about sales, you think about, oh, uh, you know, these dynamic personalities and being able to walk in and own a room. And that's certainly it. But the other part of sales is, is just a numbers game. And you got to get in front of as many people and not take it personally and put yourself out there. And that's what James Coley was so good at. Uh, you know, there's, there's just, it comes a point in time where you've got to have so many touch points to be successful. And James Coley was, uh, was, you know, <laughs> having as many touch points as possible from, from 6.45 AM till midnight. And uh, there's some guys on the staff that are certainly like that. Absolutely. I want to pause real quickly here to thank Shannon Young. I did not only my, my mortgage, but also my refi through Shannon. 844-FSU-LOAN. It's 844-FSU-LOAN. Shannon Young, the best loan guy in the business. He'll get you hooked up. Over 60 Noel Cast listeners have now used Shannon for their home loan. There's a reason why. It's a great relationship. It's a great product he's selling. It's the ability to quickly make contact with you, the personal touch. Hey, it's all those things we just talked about, about, about being a great recruiter, except Shannon's not going to get his hands dirty for you. He doesn't need to. The product he's selling is, is that good. Well done, sir. Well done. Uh, Blake asks, if you have to replace one Norvell assistant with a 2018 Taggart assistant, who are you taking? What about the inverse? Who get the boot, <laughs> gets the boot if you have to bring on one of Willie Taggart's guys? So um, I'll certainly answer the first part of the question, Blake, and I'm not trying to dodge anything, but I, I don't know how many of the current staff listens to this. That's not really my concern, but I've become over the years aware as to you know, people's wives listen to this. Uh, people around them listen to this. I don't know that it's appropriate uh, or accurate for me to basically suggest somebody lose their job before they've ever coached a game. So that that would be a tough, tough thing for us to do and would be wildly unfair. But your question is a really is a is a good one. I'll say that I don't know that he'd be a great position coach anywhere, but Woody is an asset on almost any staff in the country. Again, I don't know that you necessarily want him coaching linebackers, uh, but he's a really good recruiter. His style doesn't fit with everybody, but he's able to make contact and build a relationship with kids. Again, I don't know that I'd value him as a position coach as much as I would uh, the ability to work in the recruiting sector. So I think that you could put put that guy on most staffs and he would be an asset in some form or fashion. I I think that's a fair answer. Um, I, I really think Norvell pretty much got his like first or second choice at most of the on-field coaching staff positions. Uh, as you guys know, I, I don't think he got anywhere near his top choice for one of those recruiting director positions. So I, I think I'll, I'll go with that. I, I think that uh, maybe you're, you know, going back to tag staff or one of those guys, uh, even with you know, some, of the, some of the complaints about disorganization, I don't, I don't know that they're you know, that much more organized at, at that spot now. So uh, I will... Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and go with that. That's also a tough question for me to answer because like, I haven't seen these guys in action yet. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. So you can't be critical. I, yeah. I mean, I, that, that was my point. I, I have a hard time saying, oh, you need to replace this guy with that uh, and essentially boot him off the staff when it's worth at least seeing a, a season's worth of, uh, of what the ultimate product looks like that of which they're tasked with being responsible of. Uh, Steven asks, with the things that are going off the country and the world, We've seen athletes demanding change to things on campuses of their respective schools, like former Clemson players demanding changes to the name of the buildings on campus. What are the chances FSU considers changing the name of Dope Campbell Stadium or making any other changes to buildings or statues, if any, on campus that may be uh, considered offensive? 
I would say never say never. Uh, I, I'm not fully aware of all the criticisms. If there are criticisms being, being levied about, about the stadium name, uh, it appears so far there's not a huge amount of, of uh, criticisms being, being you know, cast about the stadium name. Otherwise, I think I would probably see it on my timeline. Uh, so my guess right now is that that's a bit of a fringe argument, which doesn't mean it's not a legit argument. It's just not something that's really at the forefront uh, right now. Uh, again, I, I think ultimately um, when you decide to take down a name or a statue, you, you weigh sort of like, what was this person all about? Right? Like, you know, would, are we celebrating them because of the bad things they did, or like you know what 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 is the sort of sort of overall balance? If if people feel uncomfortable uh, with you know a building being named after somebody who uh, you know was was like openly racist or you know a slave owner or something like that, then yeah, I, I think everybody should have the right to feel you know comfortable at, at a public university. I mean, it should be a place of of, of learning. Um, so. We have seen a lot of that in, in, in recent years. And, and I think, you know, ultimately, I don't know what's going to happen here. I definitely wouldn't rule it out after seeing what's happened, you know, all across the country. So it will be, uh, it will be fairly interesting to see how this plays out and, and, and the level that uh, some of these renamings take place. I will, will say this, and um, I believe we talked about this on the podcast um, maybe half a year ago, but like the idea of, of opening up some corporate naming is very much has been in the discussion for about a year or so. Uh, now I think a lot of people immediately think that that'll be TLC double C and I can understand that, but, um, that's, that's kind of been some chatter that's been ongoing for about a year. I I don't frequently do this, but I'm going to have to ask Bud to vouch for me. Is it something that we've kind of talked about personally for a while? And, whether or not that would actually come to fruition. You know, a lot of these stadiums are just named after, <clears throat> and obviously Florida State's is a little bit more recent uh, because of the, the institution's history, but they're named after people that were president in the 1880s or the 1910s, and they certainly weren't named with the idea that this was going to be the university's biggest touch point and kind of its, you know, its, its broadcasting point to the world. I think you'll see some changes. I do for... I think Dope Candle Stadium will have a different name in the next five years. That's my prediction. Uh, there's a litany of reasons why that could be true. I particularly think if you look into the record about some of the things that he said about FAMU at this point in time, that's going to be tough to keep his name on that. So, it, you know, we'll see how long it is. Again, I don't think it's focus number one of anybody out there. I certainly think there are more prominent things that need to be addressed and, and people's lives more immediately touched. But I think the conversation about Doke probably isn't going away. And I would predict by 2025, there's a different name on there. Okay. That's, that's an interesting prediction. And I'm, I'm going to trust you on that. Speak to somebody you, could, you should trust. I would trust Travis Johnson. Travis Johnson, a board certified family law attorney of the Metter and Johnson Law Firm, more than a decade of experience. But board certified means you're, you're a legit expert. I mean, you, you, the, the, not, not very many attorneys in the state of Florida are board certified in family law. Travis has cases all throughout the state. If you have a family law matter, or you think you might have one coming up, but you maybe don't have one right this second, take his number down. Give him a call, 850-435-9919. It's a local number, but again, Travis is really good. He has cases all throughout the state, 
888-999-9919. Give Travis a call. If you're an Olcast listener, he'll give you a free initial consult and he offers flexible payment rates. All right. Uh, so let's go ahead and get this one. Uh, Jason, Patreon uh, question says, curious on your thoughts regarding the recent Florida legislation allowing student athletes to profit off their likeness where possible. As it doesn't go into effect until 2021, other states adopting similar legislation and or the NCAA challenges to these laws. Uh, is this much ado about nothing for the big three or will it actually be impactful uh, to recruiting for them? Thanks as always. I feel like this is something that we could probably spend an hour talking about. So uh, we'll be, you know, whatever our answer here is, we're not going to be able to write chapter and verse on it. Let me acknowledge that and not trying to, not trying to interrupt you, but there's a, there's a ton of different things that need to be touched on. And uh, this is not the first time <laughs> nor the last that we will visit this subject matter. It's just the first time that we visited with a little bit more uh, certainty. I think overall, it will be a good thing for the state of Florida schools. A lot of the schools have strong business schools and you know some alumni that, that have a good bit of money. It should be able to help them in recruiting, even though you're not allowed to use this technically to recruit, you know, like officially, but at the same time, Jason brings up a really good point, which I agree with. And, and I thought there was a bit of an overreaction to how much this is going to help Florida State. You can't for one second tell me that you don't think Bama and Georgia and states like that aren't going to follow with their own bills, allowing athletes to get paid off their name, image, and likeness. I talked to a coach today who coaches at one of the big three schools. So I was talking about a recruiting thing. And he said, look, we, we might get a year head start, like, like maybe like a bonus year on this if those states screw around. But he asked me, he's like, but you don't really think that they're going to allow us to have that like unimpeded year where we're paying kids for their name, image, likeness, and they're not. I said, no, of course not. I wouldn't approach this subject uh, with the idea of what Florida State gets from the one year. I, I would look at this more as to the broader impact uh, as to everybody having access to this over a decade or so. Uh, both and the fact that you're talking about a relatively small amount of time to which would be the outcome of this. And two, um, you're not going to have exclusivity on this. Uh, uh, states will leapfrog Florida just as Florida did um, California. So what I would, one thing I'll say, and I'll be fascinated to see, you know, how you pick up on this over a national level. Um, I think the immediate assertion by some people is like the idea that the, gas station on the corner is going to have an endorsement deal with a middle linebacker or something like that. That's, that's not what's going to take place in my opinion, or if it is, it'll be insignificant. Within two years, you'll have funds uh, that are being paid into by a broad number of people and that are basically like uh, almost whether you look at them as like annuities or whatever else. I mean, I, I think you'll have a relatively uniform way of approaching this with people on your table or on your, uh, on your recruiting list. And not to say that the number one quarterback in the country is not going to be offered more than a, a, you know, last day offer of a tight end. But I think this is going to be institutionalized in a much more quicker manner. And, and you're not going to have kids, you know, holding, holding candy bars in their hand and, and talking about uh, a $500 deal with the, the local mini mart or something like that. I, I think I agree with you. However, the, the gas station example is a good one because that kind of that that kind of thing most likely unless that guy has like some extreme like moral objection to paying college football players which I'm guessing if he's that eager to do so above the table 
he's probably already trying to do so below the table. And in that case, we need to get him in contact with, with, uh, uh, with the question that Bishop posed in question number one with, with how to get those coaches to be the best recruiters possible. God, there's so many things we can talk about here. Yes, I, I agree with you. Number two, it's not like all the kids are going to start getting bought and paid for, right? Like that, that's not going to happen. Most of the, the, the way the money flows into this is as follows. There are a certain number of businesses out there. And I'm talking about not people, but businesses who just be, uh, probably because they're corporate or semi-corporate just are not comfortable playing the like payola game, right? With, with recruits uh, below the table. Those businesses, I think, who really want to get involved in college football probably will get involved in college football some more and maybe involved in, in you know, sponsoring some kids, some of whom have to be recruits and, and, you know, when they get on campus. But I agree, th- those types will, will pay into a fund. I, I don't think they really want to have to deal with like, all right, let, let me get this, this you know, deal negotiated with, with the backup quarterback before he becomes famous because once he does, we'll, we'll have, him, have him at a really, you know, really great rate relative to his market value. A lot of these things that the kids are going to be capitalizing are going to be the kids who are just absolute superstars. This is very much uh, like a, a, a bell curve thing. The majority of players do not have a whole lot of market value. And they, I think you could actually argue relative to how much damage you think they're doing to their brains with, with concussions, obviously. But if you sort of zero that out, college is a pretty good deal for most of these guys. Uh, but for the superstars, college is a terrible deal. Right, you're you're losing both in terms of, of actual salary and in terms of, of marketability, several of your most profitable years. So, you know, a guy like a Tebow could probably make a couple million a year based uh, when he was in college. Like, do you think he was worth more to Florida marketability wise than Urban Meyer was? I certainly do. I mean, the guy was an international superstar, especially with with the faith, you know, the faith based comp- component there. Uh, so I don't think you're going to see the big corporations. I do think you'll see uh, some businesses basically sponsor individual kids, especially social media-based businesses or businesses that really uh, would uh, would would do well to advertise on a kid's social media. There, there's all kinds of issues there. Now, I do want to talk real quickly, if I can, um, or if you want to jump in on, and comment on that first. So I, what I wanted to talk about next was how schools are planning to use this. I'll be interested to see uh, kind of like what you talked about with, if you see social media companies uh, investing in kids. I'm also interested to see if like, maybe this doesn't take the path of, you know how professorships are named, like uh, I'll just use the, you know, Smith. Uh, You've got the Smith family professorship of economics or something like that. Is there any chance you see like the Smith family uh, sponsorship of running backs or something like that? I'm curious as to see how much this, how like of a focus you see, or if you get these donors to commit, you know, 200K a year that they're basically the, uh, you know, not only is their name on the linebacker room, uh, that they're directly contributing to the linebackers well-beings or something like that. Uh, I don't think that's an absolutely fictional idea. That's a really interesting idea. I think it's possible. I mean, I I don't know if it's absolutely going to happen, but I, I think it's it's certainly possible that that they could. God, there's so many different angles. We, we could do a whole show on this. So, like, I I know some guys who are are college ball administrators that I'm actually like friends with, not not just you know work friends. 
Uh, and, and they're, they're very worried about like, Hey, this kid is going to take money to promote, uh, like this, this party, right? You know, like, like on his Instagram. And then all of a sudden somebody at that party, uh, you know, gets a DUI because they drank too much or, or a fight breaks out and somebody, somebody pulls, pulls a gun or something like that. And all of a sudden it's, you know, it's the party that, you know, this, this quarterback was, was promoting on his Instagram. They're worried about that. Uh, they're worried about like, are these kids going to um, be distracted from their studies and from their actual football playing to make money, which my response is like, well, you know, if they were actually paid their market value uh, for doing those things, then they might not have to be so distracted about making money on social media promotion type stuff. Uh, they're worried about outside agents getting involved. They're worried about uh, different leagues and different states having very different laws. They're, they're, they're practically begging Congress to make like a national rule. And I, I mean, that would be a big time bailout for the NCAA if, if they can get Congress to make some like kind of national, national legislation on this. Uh, Cause like that, that's, that's what they desperately want. But the teams that are doing the best to take advantage of this are the teams that have the really good social media departments, right? Are very good with, with their recruiting marketing. And you know, to that end, obviously like, like Florida state, they made some quality hires there, I think, just based on, on the graphics going out, based on the feedback we get from kids. They got the guy from Clemson, right, who, who was, was part of Clemson's recruiting marketing. And then they got, also got the guy from Nevada. And I'm trying to think what their names are right now. But like, for sure, those guys are already on it. They're actually, uh, one example, and the first team that I heard of doing this actually, uh, and, and the guy got fired, so it's clearly not, not, not the key to winning, but Arkansas, like two years ago, I had a guy on Chad Morris's staff at Arkansas tell me, dude, we're, we're actively making personalized graphics and brands, like brand logos for kids. And this was in 2018 uh, because we think name, image, likeness legislation is coming. And we want to show these kids how early on we're on this so that if this gets passed when they're in college, we can show them like, here's how to, here's how to make your own brand. Right, like, like like the Ingram Smith brand with with, with like a, like an intertwined I and S and like professionally done looking logos and they're sending these kids like with their letters, but also like digital business cards and things. I'm serious. And the kids eat this kind of stuff up, you know, putting them on the cover of GQ. We saw Florida do that. We saw Alabama do that. I think Bama's actually was a little bit better, but they were both fairly quality. Dallas Turner uh, posting those those graphics to Twitter. Florida State does stuff like that too. Uh, right now they're really not in it with any kind of five-star kids. So you don't see a lot of five stars posting their, you know, the edits if she sends them on, on, uh, uh, on, on Twitter, but I'm sure they send them out. They, they send them out to, you know, to a lot of people, but the personalized brand logos and the personalized branding and marketing plans for kids is a big deal. I, I think this scenario where coach Mike Norvell and those guys have been fairly smart about this and, and they do kind of try to make it personal for these kids. It's also an area where having an enormous recruiting staff could be a pretty big advantage, right? And having a plan like an in-house, I think we're going to see in-house athlete marketing teams at these schools to where they're going to try to make it so that these kids don't get outside agents involved in these deals. That's going to be the whole goal. The, the goal is going to be trying to limit as many people that these kids work with. Uh, and you can look at that as a restricting force or whatever else, but that's, that's the absolute truth as to how this is going to play out immediately. 
would definitely, um, we're not trying to do a promo for anybody, but it makes like the work that Didier Occident and other people have done with these kids even more important uh, for them to have a better idea as to what they're entering into, how they use their money. Um, and also maybe it's a, maybe it's kind of a harsh wake up call for a lot of these kids that like, you know, it's going to be a real slap in the face as to who's getting money and who's not. Uh, you're absolutely right about that. I think as far as the impact on Florida State, I think it'll be positive overall. Uh, I think Florida State will have a hard time con- like chasing after like the Julio Jones of the world, not an athlete that they're having a ton of traction with right now. Uh, as far as I'm talking about the clear number one player at his position, a kid that you could have started recruiting at the end of a sophomore year and know that he's probably going to be the best wide receiver in his class. Um, but from a broader perspective, I think it helps Florida State. I think it can kind of uh, be more aggressive in pursuing the bricks and mortar, or the bricks and mortar of a program. So uh, we'll see a, a topic that we could discuss for forever. Uh, but hopefully, we've given it, you know, some kind of intro talk uh, at a better level with the idea of certainties from from the Florida legislature perspective. All right, so uh, guys, we're going to talk more name image likeness going forward. That's just thing that's going to become a part of college football. Uh, but for tonight, I think that's a good little opening discussion. Yes, Florida State is actively using it to recruit right now. Yes, they might get a one-year advantage on it. Long-term, it, it, it will not be an enormous advantage for the Florida schools. Uh, by the way, I think DeSantis might read my work uh, at, like, because he was literally saying we got all these four and five stars leaving the state. <laughs> he was, he, he certainly is speaking a level about recruiting that I've never seen a politician do. So I was like, Ron DeSantis reads the Sunshine State scorecard? If I was going to say, if he's reading the Sunshine scorecard, that's awesome. And congratulations. I was laughing. I was laughing my butt off there. Uh, it, so first, it's like, okay. And then he followed it up with another tweet. And I was like, oh, he's talking about like specifics here. And then JC Latham went, you know, went to Bama on Friday. And uh, the, the timing of that was perfect. All right, let's go ahead and take, uh, take the question here from Tom. He says, hey, guys, with questions surrounding the season and a number of games and everything uh, that goes with it, is there any chance you see guys leaving for the supplemental draft for the NFL, obviously? It, it wouldn't get them first round money, most likely, but it gets them paid now and on the way to contract number two instead of maybe a season. So this is something that Bud and I discussed a, a good amount uh, before the show. And the idea of the supplemental draft is something we've kind of been kicking around for about eight weeks or so. But there's not necessarily the immediate avenue to the supplemental draft that people think, uh, in my opinion. It, it looks like you either have to have graduated or basically have been suspended or, or kicked off the team to be able to enter into a draft. It's not something that you can just automatically declare for. Uh, Part of the reason why I spent as much time reading this over the last couple of months is because I thought that if you had a real, uh, you know, a real situation with COVID and a real impact on the schedule, uh, that you could see a lot of kids entering the draft just because of the uncertainty that that could bring up. Uh, I don't think that's the case, and I don't know that that it's nearly as easy to get into that as as maybe people generally think. Yeah, so w- you see a lot of either like obvious or unintentional collusion between the NFL and the NCAA, right? Like. The NFL does not want to have to draft all these guys straight out of high school. The NCAA loves that the NFL refuses to draft these guys at high school because if they did, I mean, a lot of your best players would just get drafted out of high school. Um, and the NFL loves not having to maintain a minor league system. So here's a case where I highly doubt the NFL, unless it's very clear and very early, very clear early on that, uh, there's not going to be a college football season. I don't think the NFL would say, hey, like only having 
you know, a nine game season or a six game season or whatever, or a season that stretches over into the spring. I, I don't think the NFL is going to look at that as satisfying its supplemental draft requirement. I think you're exactly right. Like normally it's you're out of eligibility or the NCAA has ruled you ineligible, right? Tattoo gate, that kind of stuff. All right, that'll bring uh, this episode of the Nolcast to an end. Certainly appreciate all of the Patreon questions that we were able to get to, uh, or certainly appreciate all of our Patreon feedback, the questions that we were able to get to, high quality as they have been, and there's certainly some others that we will get to uh, in the next show. Thank you, broader listener base, for all the iTunes reviews. The idea that we have as many as we do for a single team show is just uh, wild. And if we could get to 4,000, I don't know what we'll do, uh, but we'll certainly do something significant. And uh, if you have a chance to give us a five-star review or a written review on Apple Podcasts, it uh, it means more than it probably should. But uh, algorithms are algorithms, and that's how theirs is written. Until next time, thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to you, the listener. We will talk to you later this week. This has been the Nullcast. This has been the Nullcast. The Nullcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith. Music by Judson Wright and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles.